From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The House Appropriations Committee is going along with President Trump's proposal to raise federal employee pay 1% in 2021. The committee's financial services and general government bill doesn't include a different increase than the White House's budget request. GovExec reports the bill also doesn't include a number of cuts to retirement and benefits previous Congresses have proposed. More on this later in the program. The Homeland Security Department's uh, headquarters project at St. Elizabeth's Hospital site would get $200 million more in another provision of the House Appropriations Committee's bill. The General Services Administration's building the project. Federal News Network reports over the past 10 years, Congress has given GSA and DHS less than half of what it needs to fund the project. One of the cross-agency priority goals in the president's management agenda has a new name and two new goal leaders. Federal Procurement Policy Administrator Michael Wooten and Homeland Security Department Senior Procurement Executive Soraya Correa joined Commerce Senior Procurement Executive Barry Berkowitz on the newly named Frictionless Acquisition Goal. The goal's former name was Improved Management of Major Acquisitions. The General Services Administration's canceling its Alliant II small business contract. It's been trying to get it off the ground for almost four years. Roger Waldron's president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Roger, thanks for coming on the program. A lot of churn in the last week or so on GWACs at the General Services Administration. What's your takeaway from all the moves that we're seeing, Roger? I think the biggest takeaway that I have is that it's a it's a significant uh, market altering event. Um, the Alliant uh, brand name, um, but uh, amplified high quality access to IT companies across small and large businesses. The program, it's a brand that's well known in the procurement community and by customer agencies. And the cancellation, I think, puts a hole in the channels. For, for small business IT firms seeking to do business with the federal government. And it's going to be um, interesting to see how GSA tries to bridge that gap, where they go next. Um, they've talked about uh, coming up with a new strategy for small business uh, GWACs across the government. Um, but there's little you know, transparency at this point as to what that will look like, what their plan is. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be reaching out to customer agencies, and I know they will reach out to industry to get feedback, but it's a significant, I think, setback for what has been a very successful program over the life of the contract. I, I want to say there's about $8 billion in purchases from small business IT firms, and the last four or five years, it's been averaging well over a billion dollars uh, annually in terms of usage by customer agencies. This announcement came about a week after uh, GSA said we're going to raise the limit on STARS 2, maybe not even a week, just a couple of days after GSA said we're going to raise the limit on STARS 2, we're going to roll out STARS 3 and start taking proposals on that. Is that maybe the strategy? Is it fair to think that maybe GSA's decided, after, especially after all the hassle they went through with Alliant 2, maybe we don't need an Alliant anymore? Brand name considerations that you raised are legit, but if STARS is ready to go, STARS 2, I don't recall having the same kinds of challenges that Alliant 2 did. Maybe they figure STARS 3 can roll out the same way 
and they can avoid all this headache altogether. Well, I, you know, I think the devil's in the details. So with stars two, um, they've raised the ceiling. They, 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 um, you know, met the ceiling, you know, uh, on the contract of $15 billion. They've raised it to $7 billion. But as I understand, they've also actually, for any orders issued after July 1st of this year, they've limited the period of performance to two years, out to two, 2022, when there's another two years left of, uh, of contract performance period. So in reality, that increase in the $7 billion, you know, with the shortened period of performance, I don't know how that's going to work out. Because when you stop to think about it, you know, typically these orders are multi-year orders. To the extent you're, so you are basing your requirement on the dollar value of what you're buying and the time period for performance. If you've, you know, expanded one and contracted the other, uh, I don't know what the business case is for customer agencies to utilize a vehicle because think about it, you get into next year, then you've only got literally one year left of performance on the contract. Um, as I understand it. So GSA, I think needs to clarify that, address that, uh, especially this time there's, Lots of work to be done. There's lots of support that should be provided for small businesses and 8-8 firms. And expanding that window for the period of performance and orders, I think, is vitally important. I just want to make a couple other quick points here. Do I think there's an opportunity here for CISP4, which they're beginning that procurement? Um, it's currently structured as a single award with small and large businesses on it. You know, I think there's an opportunity here. If they broke uh, the small business portion off um, and did it like they did the previous one and created a separate small business vehicle, I think there's a huge appetite for that, both from the small business community and large businesses to create two separate vehicles there. It's more efficient. It's more effective in the long run. Um, it does. It creates less confusion for customer agencies and for companies trying to bid, trying to bid on it. Um, you break that out. I think that's a that's a potential major channel to fill the gap for Alliance Small Business. And I also think you know one of the programs that's sort of at an afterthought that's mentioned with regard to GSA is the small is the GSA schedules program. Now on the IT schedule on an annual basis, uh, thirty six percent of the dollar volume goes to small businesses. And that, that translates into $5.5 billion. That number alone exceeds all the other GSA, small business, GWAX, dollar volume combined. So it's a huge program for small businesses. It's something GSA needs to focus more on. I don't, for life of me, understand why it's not a best-in-class contract. Um, and to accelerate small business opportunities, GSA does need to take a quick look and implement on the on-price schedule, which they have the authority to do. Um, they have the regulatory flexibility to do. Um, and they just just need the will to take, to take the next step and implement that and have a huge benefit for small businesses and bring in innovation from the market. The STARS contract, STARS three procurement, that's gonna take a while to get off the ground and get an award. They've just issued the solicitation. If I recall, the draft RFPs were uh, issued last year and the update was provided by uh, industry and feedback. Now they've just issued it. Uh, I, I, I don't know what their actual cycle is, but that's going to take a long time to ramp up, and you won't see that ramp up until uh, probably next year at the earliest. Roger Waldron, great to have you on as always. Lots more to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Francis.
Up next, predicting pay raises for federal employees. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the outlook for your salary boost in fiscal 2021. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Federal employees would see a 1% pay raise next fiscal year if the House Appropriations Committee's markup stands. The committee didn't mention a pay raise in the mark. That means it defers to the White House budget request for a 1% raise. Jessica Clement is Staff Vice President of Policy and Programs, the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, thanks for coming on. As always, what's your takeaway from this? Were you surprised that this is what came out in the mark? Um, I, when the bill text was released earlier this week and there was no mention of a pay raise whatsoever, I think it is fair to characterize our reaction as being both surprised and disappointed. Um, okay, so I will take that as the understatement of the week. What were you expecting and, and what do you think makes sense? How do you go about, what's the path forward for something else? That's a really good question. So um, as you're... Viewers are probably aware we, NARF, the other employee groups, are asking for a minimum of a 3% pay raise uh, next year when you include the average with locality pay. That is based on how private sector wages moved in the 12 months leading up to the president's budget request. That's the statutory formula. Um, the president's budget request came out 1%. That was in February. Now, of course, we are in very different economic times as a country than now, today, in July, than we were in February, right? And that was certainly going to play a role in the in the pay raise decision. Um, I was not expecting this pay raise decision to be made this early in the appropriations process. Certainly, we're, we were hoping for at least a base increase of 2.5%. Federal employees in certain agencies are on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, and to be silent and defer action to the president, um, I don't think guarantees a 1% pay raise. The president has until the end of the year to decide where he wants to go, and he's changed his mind before. Um, what's what's the path forward? Is it pretty much at this point, are you working with the White House? Are you working with the administration? Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to even get my arms wrapped around how you're communicating with Congress just in the environment that we live in, how you get on people's radar screens when you can't walk up to them anymore, like historically we've done for decades in this town. Well, I can tell you, my staff and I have been on the phone a lot in the last couple of days. Um, we've just seen subcommittee markup, right? So the pay raise silence has only gone through one piece of the appropriations process. They are at a stalemate on the Senate side with appropriations, although we certainly assumed that the Senate appropriates bill would be silent as well. Um, so there are avenues here. We still have full committee markup which will happen in the coming weeks. And we still have a floor opportunity to find a member of Congress to introduce an amendment to put a pay raise in the bill. Um, I can tell you that NARF and the other federal employee groups are going to be exploring all those options um, to see what we can do to change this course. All right. There's good news. That's the bad news, I guess. And, and it strikes me that if you still have avenues, then it's not entirely bad news. It's not a lost cause, it doesn't sound like. And there's good news that I saw in this appropriations subcommittee, Mark, and that is none of the things that you and I have talked about over the years that are potentially detrimental 
to benefits, especially the non-cash benefits that federal employees uh, get, none of that stuff appears to be in jeopardy this time around. I mean, I understand that the reverse of what you just said is true, that that stuff could get back into the pipeline somewhere, but the fact that we start out with it not in the pipeline is a pretty good sign, isn't it, Jesse? So when we talk about those cuts that I've been talking about on your show for years now, right, uh, getting rid of the pension, employees contributing more to their pension, changing the FEHB formula, all those things, they don't normally crop up in appropriations bills because you're not supposed to legislate in appropriations bills. These are funding bills, right? So the fact that they're not in appropriations bills doesn't really give me solace. What I'm more worried about is if Congress is able to say do an infrastructure package. The House passed a bill, I believe it was last week, on transportation. If a bill like that were to ever make it through both chambers and they needed to find a way to pay for it, that's where these cuts come into play. And the federal government has spent a lot of money in the past few months. And if they need to buckle down on spending moving forward because we've spent trillions of dollars on pandemic relief, those are the places where I would fear those cuts would come back into play. I think the good news coming from the FSGG appropriations bill, if you're looking for one, is it continues to block the merger um, between the Office of Personnel Management and GSA. Yeah, I'm desperately trying to find the glass half full, Jesse, and you're not helping me very much. Um, <laughs> I know I'm not. It was a rough week for federal employees. I'm sorry. The, the bill, the language of the bill, though, really explicitly forbids this merger and is very explicit about how the agencies can spend the money and what activities they can spend the money on. Is it fair to say, looking at this language, that if this language becomes what the president winds up signing in these appropriations bills, that OPM-GSA merger is pretty much dead? No. I think there are some in the administration who are going to continue to push for this, and I think there are things that the administration could do um, administratively or through executive action that don't necessitate, um, necessitate legislation. I think we can continue to see things like that happen. Um, I think it is unlikely that any of these appropriations bills head to the president's desk before the start of the fiscal year. I think it is further unlikely that any of these appropriations bills head to the president's desk before the election. Um, and after the election, you and I will be having a very different conversation or perhaps the same conversation um, that we are having today. So where we go from here, I think, will really depend on how far we make it before October 1st and then again what happens in November. I'd take same if I was betting. Jesse Clement, thanks as always. Great to have you here. Thanks, Francis. Up next, getting the Army's future vertical lift off the ground. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what it'll mean for the Army and for the defense industrial base. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Army's betting big on future vertical lift as one of its big six modernization priorities. The new program presents opportunities and challenges for the force and the defense industrial base. Andrew Hunter is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, writing about FVL in Defense One with his colleague, Reese McCormick. Andrew, welcome back. It's good to have you on the program. Why is this on your radar screen? Why are you looking at FVL right now? Well, I think FEL is a really interesting case study of the new approach to acquisition that's grown up in the last several years of doing rapid prototyping 
to deliver complex new systems, weapon systems. And that's something that uh, we've been doing prototyping for a while, but this approach is new. And it raises interesting questions for the industrial base and interesting questions for how we execute programs that, uh, that we wanted to study. You know, when, as you and Reese write about this in Defense One, it looks like your, my takeaway at least from your piece is, people all across the department and maybe even all across the civilian sector should pay attention to this acquisition process for possible cues to make this work in other areas. Am I reading between the lines appropriately, Andrew? Yeah, I think that's right. So there's, you know, we're pioneering a new approach to, uh, to defense acquisition with this system, with this rapid prototyping middle tier of acquisition system. Uh, and I do think FEL is one of the more interesting areas in which this is uh, currently being undertaken. The Army is innovating here, uh, and I think it's something the rest of the department will need to uh, pay close attention to. You uh, and Reese write, the Army's management will be key in ensuring that industry is able to get the most out of the new design and production methods, reconfigured supply chains, and a reshaped workforce. Those, All three of those components, though, um, if industry is able to get that right, sound like will position them well for what the Navy is talking about doing in acquisition, what Hondo Gertz is doing there, what Will Roper wants to do in the Air Force, and what Dr. Jetty wants to continue to do in the Army. This, this will put industry in the right spot for whatever happens long after all of those men are out of office as well. Is that fair, do you think? Well, I think that's exactly the challenge, that uh, you know we're sort of changing the rules of game for industry. Uh, industry uh, for better or for worse, has been used to the system the department's had for decades, which is that the, the government takes on most of the risk. Uh, and so industry can take on a lot of risk because the government is standing behind them and, and protecting them against that risk. And the rapid prototyping approach has been very successful at drawing industry in to develop prototypes, uh, which is a great thing. And we're seeing lots of competition, which is a very good thing. Uh, what's a little less clear is how does that transition then into production? And does that increase the risk that industry is taking on? Are they as protected? Are they as backed up by the government uh, down the road uh, when competition narrows, when you start to move into production under a you know potentially rapid fielding approach or, or however the Army chooses exactly to manage that? And that's the risk because for the big primes, they're there. They're willing to take the risk. This is core to their business. They're going to do it. But for folks in the supply chain, the smaller suppliers, smaller companies, it's a proportionally bigger risk for them to take, uh, and it's not as clear that it, it'll pay off for them in the long run. And so that's one of the things we identified in our report is that risk in the supply chain. Where's the right remedy for that, and, and who's the right organization to provide that remedy? Is it the primes that can eat a little bit of that risk and, and push the relief, the remedy for that risk down the supply chain? Is it the department? to try to mitigate that risk either at the prime level and help them push it down or to go directly to those second, third, fourth tier vendors or some combination of those or, or some other way? Well, I, I think you're correct in the way you frame the question because it is everyone. It's everyone's job. It's going to take effort uh, across the board. Uh, and certainly the primes have a, a big role here, which is that they uh, probably are going to insource some things that are higher risk because they're, again, willing to take that risk on and it's critical to the program. Uh, they are going to establish strategic partnerships with suppliers that, you know, again, they will take on a little bit of the risk and help those folks get over the hump towards new production processes to build these new aircraft. Uh, and some of it is, but you know, but the, the the primes can only go as far 
as the Army is uh, able to help them go. Uh, the way the Army sets up the incentive structure for the program, the way they resource it, uh, is going to be critical to the prime success in that effort. So I do think ultimately Army's management is the key here. And, and you write to that effect in this piece, uh, the Army has the key ingredients in place for FVL if it successfully guides the industrial base through that transition. Is that structure that you just outlined the key, do you think, to being that guide for the Army? Absolutely. Uh, I think the way the incentives are set up, and by incentives, by the way, I don't just mean, you know, individual contract provisions that say you get 10% more, you know, if you deliver ahead of schedule or, you know, deliver uh, quantities on time. There's the core basic incentives in the structure of the program, how much time industry has uh, to do the work, uh, how much money they make uh, if they succeed, how many aircraft they are guaranteed to win at various stages of the competition. Those are the real incentives, the structural incentives uh, that the Army's gonna have to bake into this program. Andrew, terrific insight. Thanks very much as always for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, NATSEC 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond. The virtual conference is coming next week. You'll learn how COVID-19 will affect the business of government in the national security community and how it could restructure the four specialty areas that drive the business of government, personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology. It's available next week, July 13th through 17th from 1 to 2 p.m. You can join our free webinar at fedinsider.com or tune in to WJLA 24-7 News. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.